0: 2 Peter, chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 1. Brethren, let us hear God's precious and holy word. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water." whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Amen. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of this precious passage. Well, brethren, we draw to the close of our studies in the Doctrine of Grace. No doubt, uh, this is a subject we'll return to again someday, one that we will probably come to on a fairly regular basis, because it is something we constantly need reminding of. We always need to uh, work through the fundamentals of our faith and the glories of God's Word as they reveal God's saving purpose in Christ. Now, uh, <clears throat> uh, the last few of our studies, again, these are fairly loose studies. They're not uh, highly technical and detailed. But we want to be able to look at some of the passages that are often used as objections regarding the uh, what we believe to clearly be the doctrine of Christ, uh, the doctrine of God's holy word. Uh, I remember as I was struggling with God's sovereignty and the, the doctrines of election, that uh, several passages that I had heard preached throughout my life would constantly come to my mind. And I would, I would say, well, what about that one? And What about that one? And then as I began to study and actually look at God's Word in its context, things began to change a little bit. Uh, And I realized that it's very easy to take a portion of a verse, pull it up out of its context, make it sound like it's saying what in fact it isn't. Sometimes actually pressing it to say the very opposite of what it truly means. And I'm afraid but that's what we see in the passage that is sitting before us. Uh, One of the verses that is often brought up regarding God's purpose in salvation is this one in verse 9 where it says, "...the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward." Now, most of you have never heard that much of that verse used in its context. What you normally hear is this, "...God is not willing that any should perish." Now, about that much of it, on occasion, someone that's really fired up might add the next clause, but that all should come to repentance but often you don't even hear that much. You simply hear, God's not willing that any should perish. So your doctrine falls. Well, then what does this mean? Well, we have to see it in its context. There are three questions we want to ask and hopefully to answer. The first is, who is being addressed? Secondly, what is the context? That's always vital when we come to any passage. And thirdly, what is being addressed? Well, in answer to the first question then, who is being addressed? The answer is believers, not the world, not everyone everywhere, not all people at all times. But believers. In fact, both of Peter's epistles make clear that he is writing to God's children. Turn to first Peter chapter 1, one Peter chapter one Verse one and we have the following. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, graced unto you, and peace be multiplied. He's writing, unto God's beloved children. He's not making a general and wide appeal to lost men. He is writing specifically to God's dear children, described by Him here as the elect of God. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And we've already studied the doctrine of foreknowledge. It means love before time. Love before the foundation of the world. An intimate union. Union. Uh, both in purpose and later by the power of the Holy Spirit, brought to consummation. God knows His dear children. He knows those that He loved before the foundation of the world. He sent His Holy Son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish for them a perfect and a free salvation, a glorious, glorious deliverance by His eternal, sovereign grace. That's worked out through the sanctification of the Spirit. What does it bring? Obedience, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Grace is what God purposed before the foundation of the world and lavishes on His people through the work of Christ as applied by the Holy Spirit. And peace is the result. We have peace with God. Because Jesus Christ, our Savior, bore in His own body on the tree all of the penalty for all of our sins for all of eternity. Grace and peace sum up what God has done for us in the glorious work of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 But ye, speaking to these elect of God according to the foreknowledge, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. The word peculiar there means own special. You are God's own special people. It doesn't mean you're odd. All of us, of course, in the flesh certainly may be. But it doesn't mean you're odd or strange, but peculiar in the sense of being God's own special people. Peter is writing to God's children. And we could go on, but I think this is enough to establish what we want to say, uh, except to uh, begin Second uh, Peter in chapter 1, where once again he makes this obvious. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. These are believers. He's writing plainly to those who have obtained like precious faith. They didn't come into the world with saving faith, but they have obtained a faith that saves by the righteousness, the mercy of Almighty God. The faith that saves, as we've studied throughout this particular series, is that which is uh, uh, the, the glorious gift of the Holy Spirit to God's dear children. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The salvation that is set before us, glorious full and free by the grace of God, comes in the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, springing up into repentance and faith. We obtain faith. And it's set before us here in verse 3, according as His divine power hath given, His power hath given graciously all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Well, brethren, the only way to have life is that God in His mercy, through the power of the Spirit, brings us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must believe the gospel. We must believe the good news, the truth of Almighty God. And we believe it because we have obtained like precious faith through His almighty power. He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Well, brethren, the the very life of a Christian begins in faith. It continues in faith. And it will be all of faith until such time as our faith becomes sight and we're in the presence of the Lord. That faith comes as part of God's gracious gift by His divine power. Now, he's made us then partakers of the divine nature. This is another way of speaking of the new birth. So, what we have again said before us plainly is that he is writing unto believers. Look at verse 10. Wherefore, the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. So, I think we've looked at enough to establish that the first and second epistle of Peter are addressed to believers, those who've been transformed by the glorious power of God, the saving grace of the Almighty. Secondly, then, what is the context? The context is that God's children are suffering. Peter is writing to these blessed first century believers who are undergoing severe trials for their faith. Uh, Brethren, it's easy to talk about loving the Lord Jesus Christ when you are not suffering. But when the pressures of uh, suffering for the sake of Christ, especially in the form of torture or in losing your job, your family, even your life. When those press in upon us, we begin to find what we truly believe and what we do not. And it has been the experience of the Lord's people that when great trial and tribulation fall, very often they're shaken. They struggle. They wrestle. They want to know. Why is this happening? Why is this coming upon me? And Peter tells us in First Peter chapter one, verse seven, he says, That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Christ. Their faith is being sorely tried. First Peter chapter four, verse twelve. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the Fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, brethren. There is going to be difficulty, trial, suffering in the life of all of God's true children, one way or another. Whether whether we are persecuted unto blood, or whether we simply face uh, being shunned by the world, frowned upon by our families. Brethren, there is no escape of the fiery trial that will come following the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, it was, it was in great measure that these early Christians suffered. And this is why Peter is writing to them and he is encouraging them to keep on in the faith because of the glorious saving work of Christ and the great hope that lies ahead. The Lord Jesus is coming back. This is promised in the Old Testament. It's promised in the New Testament. And that is ultimately the context that we find ourselves in, chapter 3. So we want to see then, finally, in this third question, what is being addressed? And what we have is assurance to suffering saints not a discussion of salvation in general. Okay? We're not talking about a gospel call here. We're talking about assurance and encouragement to suffering saints. Now, Peter has urged the saints to sanctification, to a life of holiness... In uh, 1 Peter, he says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Gird up the loins of your mind. Pull up your robes, so to speak. Tuck them in so that your legs are free to run. You couldn't run in those robe-like garments. You couldn't work uh, without getting caught up in them. So it was not unusual for them to take their robes when they were out of the public eye, so to speak, uh, and out and working in the field, and they would take their robes and the men would take them and gird them up, pull them up and tuck them in so that the bottom parts of their legs were free and they could, they could move and labor with a little bit more liberty. Uh, Peter says, Look, gird up in your minds. Pull up the robe of the things that would keep you from running and laboring the way you ought to and be Holy! Because you're God's children. He speaks of confidence in God's Word. And he warns regarding false teachers, especially in the second epistle. So, as we enter chapter 3 then, we have believers, the elect of God, being addressed by the Apostle Peter within the context of suffering... And the issue is assurance and encouragement to suffering saints. Alright, everybody with me? Now, then as we come into this chapter, he says this second epistle, beloved. I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds. Now, this is, this is one of the most important works of elders and of teachers. Is that we are to stir up the minds of God's people By way of remembrance. It's just easy for us to forget what God has said and what He's promised. Especially when uh, the weight of suffering and trial falls on us. He says, that ye may be mindful. I want to stir up your mind. I want to encourage you. By way of remembrance. I want to tell you what you already know. That ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before of the holy prophets. Now, Just as a footnote here, I always have to go back and say, look what he's doing. What's he building his case on? The Holy Word of God. The apostles always go back and build their arguments upon the Word of God. And he says the holy prophets have spoken this, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. He covers both the Old and the New Covenant at that particular point. He says, the prophets of old and we as the hand-selected apostles of Christ bring the Word of God to you. We speak His truth and His revelation. Knowing this first, here's what you need to remember. That there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. From the Old Testament to the New, there have been false teachers. There have been scoffers. There have been those who have mocked the revelation and promises of God. They walk after their own lusts. They profess to be God's mouthpieces here on earth. But they're not. They're not walking according to the Holy Spirit. They're walking according to the wicked desires of their own flesh. They're mockers. And what do they say? Verse 4 tells us. Where is the promise of His coming? Now focus on that word promise. Where is the promise? The promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Christians have a hope. That God is going to come at His appointed day and interrupt history. He's going to stop it as we presently know it. And He's going to bring judgment. Brethren, that was taught plainly in the Old Testament. You cannot read the prophets, especially Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, without knowing that there is a coming day when God will bring final judgment to the earth. The Jews knew this. They had an eschatological hope. They were looking to that great and glorious time when time itself would be no more and the great God of heaven and earth would bring judgment upon all men. Every thought, every word, every deed according to His holy standard. While it wasn't so clear in the Old Testament that Christ was that standard, Paul understood it and preached it plainly in the New Covenant. And so did the other apostles. The world will be judged by that man. Now, the mockers are going to say, where's the Where's that promise of His coming? When you go back and look at the days of the fathers up till now, what do you see? Things haven't changed. So why do you go on with this hope? Why do you go on with this foolish looking to the future when nothing's changed? Peter says, "...for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water..." whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. In other words, they conveniently overlooked the fact that God has brought judgment upon the earth once. And He came with a great and mighty flood and destroyed the wicked from the face of the earth. They say, these mockers saying, well, things have never changed, seem to have conveniently overlook the fact that God has already brought judgment once as a precursor, as a type of the time that He will come in great judgment yet again. He's promised that He will never destroy the the world by water, by flood again, but the next time will be in flaming fire. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store. The power that brought that judgment once before is now keeping the world as it is. <clears throat> Reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. There's a contrast. Destruction by water and flood. Destruction by but beloved be not ignorant of this one thing he says now dear ones I'm speaking to you of the, the coming of the Lord I'm speaking to you of that awesome day of judgment I'm speaking to you regarding these things that ought to make anyone who understands them tremble to his core except for those who Have a promise. I want to remind you of something, he says, and I don't want you to be ignorant. When you hear these scoffers speaking unto you that things have never changed because of this long passage of time, just remember, the earth is not on their schedule. It's on God's. Don't be ignorant that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, our God, the one who brought that first judgment and has promised the second, that one out of which only a few were delivered, and in comparison to mankind, it would appear only a few will be delivered at that last moment The great and glorious God is not bound by the time schedules of men, but with Him a thousand thousand years is like a day. It's like a day. That's a long time for us. It's nothing with God. Sun up, sun down for us is like a millennium with the Lord. And then Peter says, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. He's not late. Don't listen to the scoffers. Don't listen to the mockers. They have conveniently, willingly made themselves ignorant of the fact that God brought judgment once. And they are now mocking the fact that He will, will bring judgment in flaming fire one day. But he's not not slack. He's not late. He's right on time. He's not late concerning his promise. See the word coming up again? Promise. Where's the promise of his coming? Well, he's not late concerning that promise. As some men count slackness or lateness, tardiness, the mockers are saying, ah... Look how long it's been. Where is he? You have a false hope. And Peter says, "Don't buy that. Don't buy that." Why? Because God is long suffering to usward. Who is he writing to? The saints of God. Why? because of their persecution. And in the midst of their persecution, mockers have appeared threatening and challenging their hope. And he says, No, I want to say something to you. The Lord is not slack. He's not late. He's not tardy. He's being patient. He's long-suffering too usward, the children of God, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is not saying that God is in heaven and wringing his hands and he just is hoping that all men will somehow just turn to him. He is unwilling that anybody should perish. And yet, unfortunately, He's wanting them to be saved and they just won't let Him. Now, that's what I was raised with. I think that's what some of you were raised with. God's done all that He can do and now He's up there just waiting for you all to do something. And He's not willing that anyone should perish. but He's just up there hoping and praying that you'll come down and sign a card, say a prayer, shake the preacher's hand, make a decision. But you see, that isn't what Peter's talking about. Peter is saying that God loves His children, and even when they're going through great and fiery persecutions, And it seems like a long time before that promise will be realized. We must recognize that God is merciful and patient and not willing that one single one of His dear children be lost before that great day of judgment. You see the point? He's long-suffering to us word. Christians not willing that any of His elect, any of His children, any of His saints, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The perish here is not talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. God has a purpose, Peter is saying, God has a glorious plan. And while the mockers stand and say, Where is it? Where is that promise? That flimsy thing you've been holding on to? Look, you silly Christian. Look back over the long eons of time and tell me where your God is. Peter said, I'll tell you where He is. He's patiently bringing each of his children to repentance until he's finished. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all, all of his dear children, before the coming day of judgment arrives, come to repentance. He says, but now the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. They can scoff, but this is what's coming. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? looking for and hasting unto the coming day of God. God's not willing that any of His children should perish. That's why time keeps going on. And it's going to go on until He's finished. And that's coming. It's going to come as a thief in the night. Though it looks like a long time, Peter is intimating, when it comes, it's going to be like a thief. Breaking in when we least expect it. But it's coming. Press on then, dear Christian. If all of this is going to burn up, if all the trophies, if all the Oscars, if all the gold records, if all the certificates of your achievement, if your big houses and your bank accounts and your big cars, if all of this is going to be dissolved and burned up, how should you be living? What manner of holy people should you be? This is his purpose. This is what he's saying. And brethren, this is supported entirely by the Scripture. This isn't just something that Peter's fabricating. He's not, the Holy Spirit doesn't have hold of him, and he's just spinning out, you know, new revelation that's utterly disconnected from things that have already been said in Scripture. That's not, Peter, as I've already pointed out, is building on what the holy prophets and now the apostles are uh, revealing by the Holy Spirit. All through both epistles, Peter stands on the glory of God's Word. And he's telling us, first of all, in this, when he says, God is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. brother." that's an Old Testament doctrine. That's something that comes plainly out of the revelation of God. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. When God revealed Himself to Moses, Moses wanted to see Him. He wanted to see His glory. He wanted to know the living God. And in Exodus 34, verse 6, it says, The Lord passed by before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long Suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Why is it that the sons of Israel are not consumed? Because God is patient. He's long-suffering. Brethren, the reason the world hasn't been destroyed now and that we are here professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not because God's up there just hoping He might squeeze a few more people to make decisions, but because He hasn't finished calling all His beloved to Himself yet. He is long-suffering. He's patiently letting the wicked be wicked. He's created all things for Himself, even the wicked for the day of evil. Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, reiterates, The Lord is long suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Our God is patient, because He's going to bring sinners to Himself. This is what He's been doing, and it is what He will do until the last dear sheep is brought into the fold. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17. And refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, speaking of rebellious Israel, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready, ready to pardon. Brethren, do you hear this? Children, do you hear this? The God of the Bible is ready to pardon. Aren't you those people that believe in predestination and election and all that stuff? Does that mean then you shouldn't be preaching the Gospel? Don't you just sit around and just kind of wait for it to fall on people? No, He's told us to go and declare to the world that He's a God ready to pardon. And to call sinners... And He's patiently doing just that. With Him, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. He's saving His dear children in His patience and His mercy toward them. Thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, brethren. The Old Testament wasn't just about law; it's about a gracious and merciful God ready to pardon. Slow to anger and of great kindness. Brethren, if He were quick to anger, not one of us would be here. Brethren, can you not praise Him with the patience He has shown you? The patience that He meets out to you every day. But think back before that glorious time when He drew you to Himself. Look at your foulness. Look at your pride. Look at your self-righteousness. Look at your filth and your lies and your perversions. Look at your rebellion and your stiff-neckedness. If he were the God with a quick temper, he would have never made it to that moment where He turned your eyes to see your sin in its blackness and Christ in His glory. That's the long-suffering of God. The mercy, the grace of God. It's a kindness. That's the language Paul used. Look at the kindness of God toward us. Psalm eighty-six, fifteen. But Thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. Sinner, do you hear that? This is not a stingy God up in heaven. His grace isn't a little trickle. Look at the river of blood that poured from Christ, and you will see the extraordinary mercies of our God. Look how long-suffering he's been. He let you go on and prove what a vile, wretched, self-centered rebel you were. You were so vile and blinded in your sin, you didn't even realize it. As that glorious hymn that we sing. says, praise the grace that did alarm me. The grace that whispered peace. It woke me up. It made me tremble and see my lostness. But when it woke me up, what did I see? A God merciful, gracious, full of compassion. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brethren, it's here in the Old Testament. Peter knew what he was talking about. And when we see God's patience spoken of in the Old Testament, it is often coupled with man's repentance. Which is exactly what Peter is doing right here in chapter 3, verse 9 of 2 Peter. Joel, Joel, chapter 2, verse 12. Prophet Joel says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God because He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth Him of evil. In other words, He's giving you space to repent. Children, you don't know how long God will be patient with you But here, from His Word, He is a patient God. But do not impose upon His patience. His Word tells you now He is a merciful and gracious God. And He's long-suffering. He's patiently giving you space to repent. Repent and flee to Him now. Adults, Are you bound up in commercial religion? Are you casting all your hope on something you did? The cards you signed? The hands you raised? The little prayer someone got you to imitate? Or are you casting your all upon the revelation of a saving God and His promise not only of a cleansing fountain, but of a glorious return for his people. You believe him? This is what the. Is Peter says these things, he's not having simply a fit of inspiration, concocting something new. He is bringing to a glorious, clear, new covenant brightness that which was spoken in the Old Testament. A long-suffering God who gives men space to repent and calls them to Himself. Romans chapter 2 says, Despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Not only that, brethren, but God's patience and man's repentance are coupled with that eschatological judgment. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 At the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why? Why, Paul? Why are you telling all men to repent? Because He, God, hath appointed a day into which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men, in that He raised Him from the dead. Jesus Christ in His resurrection brought many things to fulfillment. One of them being that by His very resurrection we have a seal from God that there is going to come a great day of judgment when all will be raised to the resurrection of life or the resurrection unto death. Brethren, the Gospel is eschatological. It's not simply about me being saved and cleansed from my sins now, which of course it includes, but it points to that great and glorious day when I will stand cleansed by the blood of Christ and clothed in His glorious righteousness. And I will stand before God and I will watch all the things behind me, my works, the things I did for, for me, just burned up to a cinder and all that will be left is what little gold is found down there in all the ashes that he worked and that he did through me and the things will be the, there will be the same for you dear children we point to that coming day the gospel is about our being Saved by the mercy and grace of God. Because a day is coming when He will judge all men according to their works. If we are left only to our works, dear brethren, we have not a hope. But we have a grand hope in His coming of being clothed in His righteousness. Well, not only is God's patience joined with man's repentance Pointing to eschatological judgment, but that God's patience and repentance is a waiting for His people. We're not simply reading this into Second Peter chapter three, Ezekiel chapter eighteen. These are connected to several other verses that people love to quote a particular way. Ezekiel eighteen. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? If you will go and look at the context and read it carefully, you will see God speaking to whom? His professing covenant people. And the wicked in this context are those who profess to be the Lord's and are unfaithful to His covenant. They are breaking His law. God has no pleasure in those who bear His name as His covenant people in the eyes of the world perishing as wicked men. Ezekiel 18.30 Therefore I will judge you O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Why is he going to do this? Because he came and he chose a man out of darkness, a man named Abraham, and he made a glorious covenant with him, and he made a great nation out of him. And they stood as a testimony to the pagan nations, that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth who has mercy on sinners and He enters into covenant with them, and, with Him and makes them His people. And He has no pleasure in those that bear His name dying like wicked ones in the eyes of the world. house of Israel, it says, Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed. Make you a new heart and a new spirit, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live, for I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Well, this is very often like this other passage, just that I have no I have no death, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked is very often simply taken to say, well, see, God wants to save all men. He sits on His throne and is desirous of saving all men everywhere. And yet, He can't seem to get that accomplished. No, the. This is not what the passage is saying. It is saying that the covenant people of God should not be dying before the eyes of an onlooking pagan world as sinful wicked men. This is a grief to God because they bear His name and He brought judgment upon them because they were covenant breakers. And He said, I'll bring a judgment on you and the ears of those that hear it are going to tingle. God makes has no joy in that. Now I'm not saying he sits up there and is joyful at the death of the pagan wicked. I'm simply saying that this is often pulled out of context, simply to say that God just would like to see all men saved. He doesn't like to see anybody perish in his sins. Well that's I don't believe that the import of the passage. Context again is so very important. Ezekiel thirty three seven So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman upon the house of Israel, or unto the house of Israel. To whom? The house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth, and warn them from me. This was his mercy in his servants, the prophets. This is why he raised them up. You are my people. You bear my mark in your body. You have my sacrifices. You have my priesthood. You have my covenant. I'm married to you. I'm your husband. And you are like a whore, a harlot, seeking out the nations and going after other gods. I send my prophets to you to call you back to me. That's what he's doing. And he says, "...when I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked..." Who's he talking to? "...the covenant breakers." "...that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thy hand. O prophet of God, I've given you a responsibility. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way... He shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Therefore, O thou Son of Man, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus shall ye speak, saying, If your transgressions, if our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In other words, if you will repent of your sins, O rebellious covenant people, I will receive you back to Myself. This was My promise. I've been faithful. You're the one that hasn't been faithful. I have no pleasure in in My covenant people dying in their sins. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will ye die, O house of God? of Israel. Why spend so much time on that? Because once again, Peter is simply reiterating a clear Old Testament premise. God is patient. Even in the face of coming judgment, He's not willing that any of His dear children perish. but that all should come to repentance and in the New Covenant. All of them will. Or there may be those who profess to be God's children who are not. But God will call everyone that He gave to the Lord Jesus Christ to Himself. And they will come to Him. And they will know everlasting life. You say, well, I cannot open up Those books that you talked about last week, I can't see and peer in as to whether I'm one of God's children or not. How do I know? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you hear the Master's voice in His Word? Have you been called by His glorious voice in His Word, out of darkness, into His marvelous light? Have you repented of your sins, turning to Him in faith and trusting Him unto everlasting life and to a new obedience? Those who believe Him and His promise have a great hope. No matter what suffering, or trials may come upon them, the day is coming in that great judgment when God will burn up all this earth and establish forever His eternal glory. Until that moment, He will patiently be bringing His people to repentance and to Himself. May the Lord bless His holy word to us. Let's pray. Thank You, Most Holy Father. Your word is wonderful and clear. We praise Your holy name. We want to show forth Your salvation from day to day. O Lord, if there is one here who does not know Thee, they have surely heard that there is a great and mighty judgment coming. Something awesome. And yet, you are a patient, long-suffering, merciful, and gracious God. I pray that those who do not know thee will flee to you this very moment. We pray it in Jesus' name.
1: At www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at, swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 450 3730, by fax at 780 468 1096, or by mail. At 4710 37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T 6 L 3 T 5. You may also request a free printed catalogue. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God, For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to His commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known,